You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 12, episode eight. Family is a beautiful, sometimes invigorating, sometimes difficult and messy foundation of who we become. Our families of origin largely shape our sense of identity, whether through proud identification or through a painful and conscious choice to move away from this fundamental part of our lives. When it comes to the artist's relationship to family or the way that art and family intersect and interact with one another, there is no script or formula for the way it works. No matter how prepared we may be, it seems we're all figuring this one out one way or another as we go along. In today's episode, We're going to hear from a young adult fiction writer whose creative work is fueled by the inspiration of his family and who gains tremendous creative energy both from his children and by writing for children. My guest is the self-proclaimed award-losing author of the young adult fiction series, The Green Ember, S.D. or Sam Smith. I caught up with Sam in Bluefield, West Virginia a few months ago at the Hope Words Writers Conference. You may have heard my previous conversations from this event with writers Catherine Patterson and Esau McCulley, but I found Sam's perspective on art and family to be a refreshing point of view in a world where it would seem that traditional family or perhaps a positive experience of family is increasingly countercultural. Sam offers a fresh take on the influence and inspiration of family as well as his experience of community. As we continue our season 12 theme of art and identity, I thought this conversation with Sam would be an important addition to get us considering how family and community shapes the art we make. Is it a positive experience? Is it a pain point or a place of grief? We'll be talking in greater detail about this relationship between art and family in the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. If you'd love to go deeper with us in these conversations, I want to invite you to visit patreon.com slash makersandmystics and sign up today. And also, since this episode features the work of a children's book writer, it seems appropriate to tell you here that starting the first Wednesday in October, our creative collective will also begin reading through The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. You can find links to sign up for this book club in the show notes of this episode. Thanks so much for listening. This is my interview with children's fiction author, S.D. Smith. Sam, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me on the Makers and Mystics podcast today. I am delighted to be with you, Stephen. This yes. is cool. Yes, and for our listeners, this is part of the series that I've been collecting here at the Hope Words Conference in Bluefield, West Virginia. So we're sitting in somewhat of a library room. It actually looks like we're in the children's section of the library up here. You said you thought you might be getting ready to get murdered when we walked in here. So <laughs> That was more the hallway. This is this is comforting. We got the old VCR yes. uh, t- tray with the big fat TV. It's like it's taking me true. back to school days. Every kid's room in a library seems to come prepackaged with a VCR even today, you know. It's, it's a vintage. This is a vintage situation. Vintage. I like that. That's, that's a much better way of putting it. But nonetheless, it's an honor to get to sit with you in person, have a conversation about your creative process, the books you're writing, and you know uh, what's on your heart these days. So maybe a great place to start would be for our audience 
who may not be as familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from. Sure. I know you've had a lot of lightweights on here from this <laughs> from this conference, so I'm glad. I'm sure everyone's super excited to finally get to the, finally. Oof, we've the, been, the big we've celebrity. Been <laughs> no, I am an award-losing author. I am uh, I am uh, S.D. Smith or Sam Smith, and, and uh, I, I live really close to where this conference is. In, I live in Grandview, West Virginia. It's about an hour from here, so a real small town, um, easy to overlook. And uh, yeah, my, my career as a storyteller, as, a, as an author, as a novelist, a middle grade novelist, really started with my kids. I uh, told my, my oldest daughter, who's, who's here at the conference, she's almost 20, she was a toddler and I just told her, I used to tell her stories a lot, you know, it's one of those dads that would just kind of share adventures uh, here and there on walks, bedtimes, that kind of thing. And uh, we were on the porch one day, and it was kind of story time, you know. And I, should I continue this this story that some of these serials we had? One was about Chance the dog. One was about the girl with golden wings, and and but there were some rabbits hopping around in the yard. And uh, it was you know we live in rural West Virginia, which is to say we live in West Virginia, <laughs> you know. And so there's, there's rabbits out there, and and I just started telling her a story about an older sister rabbit and a younger brother. And, and this went on as a serial because she loved it and we just went on for years and, and eventually it kind of came to a climax of this all these stories I told were all kind of improvised in the moment but there was this climactic scene and by this time her little brother was kind of along for the ride and we all just sort of were quiet and and uh and I was like thinking in my mind like that's pretty good like that's a pretty good story that was, that was awesome I love that myself like and they and they said dad you gotta you gotta write this down so I did. I uh, stopped the novel I was working on, and I was just like a part-time sort of working on things here and there, but The, the Green Ember became this book that I wrote that was sort of a... It, I was really convinced that if nothing else happened other than that this was like a relic of our time together, that it was something that was in our family, like old grandpa, he used to tell us these rabbit <laughs> stories, and I was like, that's good. That's enough. Like, that is a cool legacy. I love it. Um, but we decided to share it, give it a try in the world, and we just found out there were a lot of other families like ours. And uh, so it's been a wonderful journey, a journey of like authentic hospitality. Like it, it's so cool to be in a job that I don't have to fake, you know, enthusiasm or I don't have to pretend like that I love my audience or that I want to give them a good gift. It's just because it started with my kids and now it extends to these other beautiful kids that I get to meet all the time and hear from and they send me pictures and letters and you know it's just like a cool it's a cool job yeah. uh, and it feels like this extension of this this very natural very uh, uncalculated mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a word but you know it was a, it was a very honest mm -hmm. beginning and yeah. I feel like it's been pretty it's not easy to do all the time but it's a but I feel like the motivation the bottom line part just feels so natural and and honest and loving and I, I love being able to sort of wake up and do that work every day wow that's amazing I love what you're saying because, you know, so many of the artists that I talk with, it seems like they're wrestling through how to reconcile art making with family. Mm -hmm. It seems like for many artists, that's a tension, you know, because, and maybe not just for artists, but anyone in the entrepreneurial world or anybody that their work is demanding, it, it, it depletes you, but you know, it, it requires everything of you. And of course, you know, family uh, requires everything of us as well, you know? And it seems like with you writing these books out of a place of family, that's a really unique perspective. I'd be curious to know more about how family influences you as a writer and an artist. 
Yeah, well, Stephen, I've figured it out. I have, I, I, I did it. Guys. I told you I've been waiting I, on this interview. I, I, I this is it, it right yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, I think you could probably just shut it down after this. This is, <laughs> we've, I think, we, I think we've we've come to the conclusion. Um, this is the climax of the story. Uh, no, it, it is. And I, I, I do believe. I, I feel all those things. I still feel it for sure. All those tensions and and the, the challenges of like, because that's a big priority for me. I want to be like a. I want to be a great dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to be a, at least want to be a good dad. And I want to be a good husband. I want to stay married. I want to like be. I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful to the Lord. I want to be. That's my heart. I want to be. I want to sort of. I want to be in my community. I want to. So I, I don't want to trade. Uh, you know, away those those valuable um, right. aspects of my life is what I think of as sort of spheres or provinces of my stewardship. I feel like my family is sort of the uh, the the central sphere for me, and and this came out of it does help, and it's natural. There's still competition there, but I I, I still I'm really convinced that. I, do, I don't even I don't know if my stories went on to just be the the you know the the Iliad or something crazy like the biggest story of all time which I'm yeah, good chances it probably, probably will be will. yeah I think it's, it's on track that. right now uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I still don't think I'll ever be as as involved in anything that's as potent as my family mm-hmm. in the world like that, I feel like my family is the most potent art I'll ever be a part of creating I think that the, the, the way that I invest in my kids and my family like that is going to go on and on and on and on into a, for a really long time and in a very short period of time that's going to be a lot of people <laughs> yeah. and all the people they touch and all the and then their kids and on and on and on and it just feels like that is such I don't look at that as like a secondary or an obstacle I feel like that is the way and it certainly was in this case for me but I just think like all the things that we as artists want we want like connection we want endurance we want um, you know things to resonate we want things to matter like we find all those things or I think a lot of those things I can't in in our families like the opportunity to invest in people to have this and I think part of the problem is it's not it's not famous Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's modest but it's beautiful and so I, I in my best moments I try to look at my family as not an obstacle to my creativity, but like an outlet mm-hmm. and, a, and a like maybe my most potent investment, even if I'm just thinking about how to impact the world. Like uh, if I'm thinking about how to spread something, it's like that's there's nothing that's going to be as powerful as that. I think maybe I'm crazy, but no, I think you're onto something. And this is such a refreshing conversation to have. You know, my wife and I were talking at length recently just about you know if if you want to bring cultural transformation on any level it begins in the family, you know? And that's something that I'm still learning, we're all still learning, but it's something that I have had to learn the hard way. You know, it's, you know, my wife and I are an interesting couple in the sense that she came from a really strong family unit, you know, three generations in the same church, went to the same college, they're all best friends, you know, live in the (laughs) same town. You know, I was basically on my own by the time I was 13, playing in nightclubs, you know, doing the musician thing. And so it's we've next week will be our 19 year anniversary. She's put up with me. Awesome, I love it. <laughs> but through that rock tumbler of of love and family and working through difficult things, we really have come to that place that you know, cultural transformation begins on the family level. It begins at home. And even with what you were saying, like it begins here and then that will spread to these people and then your children have children and their children have children. And you can see the ripple effect. A question for you in that would be, how much do you think generationally 
during your creative process? I know when you're in the zone, you're probably not thinking about the generations reading it, but how much does that impact you when you're thinking about the stories that you're telling? Well, I think that's a cool question because, like, I think the way that I think about it is I want to create things that are that are timeless. Like, I, I do think about in the sense of I want this novel that I'm writing to be uh, – Valuable in a hundred years. I don't want to write just for the moment, for the fads of the moment, or whatever. I want to. I want to write out of time, and I think a lot of that's. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about sort of reading three books out of the century for every one you read in, just so you don't sort of get caught up with whatever the mess is that we're whatever we're <laughs> thinking. And it's like it's always something, you know, and it always has been things. But you can sort of get a little bit liberated from that by by going back, since we can't go forward, and getting getting a little bit of perspective. So I I, I think about it in that sense, but I also do think of it as an investment and and uh, I mean you, you, what you're talking about that that's sort of there's so much science there's so much data on the power of of, of, a, of a child ha- you know having having two parents having it's 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 really I mean you, it's an advantage it's I mean if you could give a kid a million dollars or sort of an intact home in, in a sense like you would you would take the intact home it would give you so many more just even um, economic advantages and so it's such a gift and so I, 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 I partly because I love my children love the kids at my audience I, I, I hurt for how easy it is for us culturally to sort of disregard and, and to be sometimes like radically inhospitable to kids mm. for for the pleasures of adults and for the priorities of adults I, I that feels out of whack to me in, in a lot of ways. So I, I, I want my work to be um, timeless in, in a way. Is you know you can't do that perfectly, mm-hmm. but I want to try to try to make things that are that are not caught up in cultural sort of fads or moments. I want them. I want it to last. I want it to be a legacy in a sense. But um, more than that, I want to um, I want to live with a radical. Uh, hospitality, generosity to the kids that are reading my books, to the families. I want to love them really well. I want to give them a gift. And it doesn't mean I'm always going to give them exactly what they want or I'm going to be like lecturing them to you, eat your vegetables or something like that. No, but, but, but I'd, I'm also not going to just like, I don't know, the, we're the, the equivalent of the metaphor, but like drugs or like just candy bars all the time. I want to like, I want to feed them. I want to, and that's how I think, I think of my vocation as like one with an apron on. Like not this sort of elite artist who's oh I've, this is my path to fame and glory, and, um, but I want to I want to I want to be a servant. I want to like be a line cook. I want to like hey hey guys here's some food. You know, I want to I want to serve. I want to think that way about myself. Like I, I don't want to lose the magic. I don't want to lose lose the the power the the, the miracle of of art. I really don't. I want to hold that with one hand, but with with the other hand, I want to have this sort of really really radical and and modest sort of approach radical hospitality and and intense um uh like generosity for to, towards these kids i don't know if I, I don't think i answered your question i think i just <laughs> i think i just started talking about stuff that i'm interested well you do in. write about rabbits <laughs> <laughs> the joke is always there it's always there and it's terrible. i'm the first one that's ever brought it out i'm sure right yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, no. I, what you're saying is is wonderful, and it, it it brings up another question because when you're talking about you know serving this audience of young adults of children that you're writing for and thinking generationally, one question I have for you in that is how much do you find yourself following the story, or if I want to use our funny little pun here, following those rabbit trails, following you know where the story wants to go. Mm-hmm leading you to a place of surprise Mm -hmm. and then how much of that is you know i really want to convey this truth or i really want to serve this particular 
you know, thing to my audience. How, how does that work out in your creative process? What a great question. I, I, I uh, so I'm way more inclined toward the former, toward discovery and toward letting the story go where it wants. And I, I feel like the, the, the sort of analogy of, of, of the, of a novel or a story or work of art as a found object resonates with me deeply mm-hmm. is I just, I don't feel like I'm creating. I feel like I'm, I'm discovering, I'm finding it. Good. And that feels, that feels like in the end, the most hospitable thing I can do. So I, I do care. I do care. And I, there's an intellectual part of me as a storyteller that's always active. He's there. But I try, I'm trying not to like let him be the, the daddy all the time. <laughs> He's not the boss all the time. I'm trying to like, um, he'll come in and he'll come in and look at some point. He'll come in later too and like, uh, you know, this is not like communicating what you think. But I do, I, because that Tolkien talks about the stories bubbling up from the leaf mold of, of the mind. And, and I, I just buy that. I buy Tolkien's approach that, that stories are, are most hospitable when they're not um, rooted in the sort of the purposeful domination of the reader by the author, which is what he described allegory as doing. But he, he, he said that people confuse allegory and application or applicability. And I, I think my stories, I hope, God help me, are, are, um, are rich with applicability, but they're not allegories. They're not dominant. I don't sit and think I'm going to teach kids. What's happened for us is I've, I've written these stories. That first story was just compl- totally un- uncalculated, like about market or any, I had no clue. Like I, I think the thing was like, man, people aren't doing personified animals anymore. That's not cool. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't know any of the <laughs> stuff, you know, it's totally outside of, and, I, and, and because we independently publish, I'm, I'm not connected to any sort of publishing industry. It's sort of like just a direct relationship with the audience for the most part. So I didn't, I, I wasn't very calculating and all that, but, um, but I do find that it's, that, that, that there's, uh, that that discovery, that sort of curiosity. My own method is to is to have some plan, have some because I sort of sort of told those stories out loud. I knew where I was going, particularly with the first book. But there's been ten Green Ember books now, and 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 a lot of it's just discovery and curiosity. So my my, my method is certainly like I just go in there. I'm in the story. I know some things. I don't know a lot. And there's like, there's a character there. Like one of probably when I go around and talk to kids, I was in a room with 600 Green Ember fans the other day and raise your hand for this. Who's your favorite character or whatever. And they all, I mean, so many of them, I should say, pick this character who I didn't invent. You know, he was just sitting there <laughs> in, in this place when I, when I, and, and he, and I was like, what's the deal with this guy? He's got such a bad attitude. He's like this brooding character in the corner. I'm like, what? And so I was just, it was like curiosity. Why, why is he like this? And that's half of the, half of the process for me is yeah, finding yeah. it and letting the story find me, the characters, um, sort of discovering the characters myself. I feel like I really am that first audience. I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, that's cool. I can't believe that happened. And yeah. it, literally, it literally feels that way. I'm, yeah. I'm sure you, you can relate as a Absolutely. songwriter. And, and yeah. Absolutely. You know, well, you made me think as you're talking about being with your audience and asking what their favorite characters are, you know, and, and just the joy of seeing how this story that you've participated in bringing to fruition, how that impacts others and i was talking with katherine patterson and she made this statement that she views her audience as almost a co-creator with her on some level and i just think that's so fascinating because as i've you know studied different aspects of art i've always been interested in the way an audience impacts your work and the way that an audience you know does contribute to that creative process. And you said you've done 10 books now of the Green Ember series. How much of the audience's feedback has been an influence on your creative process? 
I don't know. That's so cool to hear that from from Catherine Patterson. I, I, I've really enjoyed meeting her this week too. So my head's like <laughs> yes. full of our conversations as well. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, whatever she said, that's what I want to go with. That's kind of that's <laughs> just my, that's my back to Yeah, I agree with her. A check mark. I'm sure she's delighted to have my endorsement. Though. Um, no, I, I, you know, I feel like it's like I don't know where where they where I end and they begin a little bit. I feel like the the, the relationship I have with my audience it, it feels great. It's really really tight. Um, I feel so honored. The, the, the kids and the families that, that are dig the, the Green Ember series are just, they're amazing. They're wonderful. So I, I feel kind of honored to be with them. And I don't, it doesn't feel to me like I'm reacting to their wants. Mm-hmm. But what I hear from them is like, oh, I've got this idea, or I think that this is what going to, you know, I hear these things that make me feel like, oh, we're together. Like, yeah. when I am doing my best work, I'm serving them best. And that's sort of like we both love the same sort of adventures. And I, don't, I think there's, there's a, like the kids, I think that one of the reasons that this book is surprisingly to me is sort of resonated is I think that, that there's sort of a, there's not a tricky sort of, again, allegory kind of a thing, but there is a sort of a deep well of kind of meaning, I think, going beneath the, the stories. And then there's sort of like, it's just like swords and, and fighting and like rescuing and bow and arrow and amazing shots. And, oh, the, you know, this, I can't believe this happened. And so the, the kids can enjoy it pretty early on. And, you know, the, what, what we heard several times or so many times, I guess, over the years now, we, I keep hearing these stories of people on the couch and they're reading it all together. And the, the moms are crying and the mm. kids are jumping. And they're both experiencing like something that's moving to them. And we sort of, it's like the, the moms weep for joy kids leap for joy and that feels that's happened so often so that i don't know where i don't know where i'm getting from them and what they're getting from me but it feels symbiotic in a sense and it feels really harmonious yeah. uh and it's a good feeling I, I, I it's almost like that that whole that cliche a little bit but it's cool that the eric liddell thing in chariots of fire where when i run i feel god's pleasure that's yeah. kind of how it, fe- it just feels like in the zone a little bit and that's not to say that it's easy but I, that's not the hard part yeah. if that makes sense I know that your faith is a tremendous part of your creative life and, you know, every part of your life, I would imagine. But I'd be curious to know, do you find that your audience is primarily comprised of a faith-based audience or do you find that your books are connecting with people outside, you know, of faith communities as well? I think that it is. I think that the majority of folks are you know it's not like a christian it wasn't didn't come out from a christian publisher it was didn't sort of wasn't in that world but i think the audience that has most it has most resonated with have been people of faith in general christians in particular i think that's the majority however there are all kinds of outstanding stories i can think of in my mind just a lot of faces just came to mind of people that um, are from sort of outside of the, uh, the my tradition uh in that sense and and like the first people that talked to me about wanting to make a green ember film were like can you tell me why this book, these books are Christian? I'm like, well, <laughs> the books didn't get saved, you know. Um, but I did try to get them to ask the Green Ember into their heart as a personal <laughs> Lord and Savior. But, um, <laughs> but so people have responded. A lot of people have responded outside of it. And some people are even like, why? It is funny. I even see in reviews sometimes, like, why, why are people considered this Christian? And I think if you are a Christian, I think it will ring your bells. 
you'll, you'll same as the, like the Lord of the Rings. Oh, only way much better. I mean, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> right. Of course, definitely. definitely. I'm still trying to promote the Tolkien guy. Just hopefully he'll get a little bit of you know a little bit of airtime. But um, but I think you know you read if you if you're not a Christian, you read the Lord of the Rings. You're just like this is an awesome story. I love it. And then if you're a Christian, you're like oh my goodness, holy cow. And 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 Tolkien was deeply christian and, and deeply catholic and, and so there's stuff in there just will, it will ring your bells and i think that's the that's the the experience of people so i don't feel like it's i've never felt comfortable with it being like oh this is only fits in sort of the christian category but then again i'm not really ashamed of that i'm not i'm not embarrassed i whoever will read a story it feels like an honor to me so i don't i'm not trying to be selective i don't feel too good for my audience or anything weird like that i, I think that it's you know if 100 religious people want to read my story i'm like that's a wow what a what a privilege uh so so definitely there's resonance there for sure I'd be curious to know, just for my own sake, who are some of your favorite or some of the more influential authors that have shaped you? Um, nobody. I, I've come up on, with all this. Totally on my original. Own. Yeah. Okay, no lessons. Good. No. Yeah. yeah. I'm a self-made. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't even say it. Um, no. I, I, so I wasn't a reader when I was a kid. A lot of a lot of uh, authors, you know, they they start writing, start reading as, at a young age, and I was a real late bloomer on, on that front. The first book that my, my brother gave me a book, I think I was 15, he gave me a copy of Ender's Game, and uh, I read that, and I was like, oh my goodness, oh, yeah. this is so fun. I didn't realize like reading could be that fun, and yeah. it was so cool. So Orson Scott Carr was an early influence for me, for sure. I got pretty quickly right into into Tolkien and, and Lewis, sort of the cliche uh, people, which I don't care. I don't apologize for that, because they're so great. Mm-hmm. And I even love, like... Lewis's um, Smith of Wooten Major and Farmer Giles of Ham, those are just some of my favorite stories. So I love Tolkien. Uh, and if he's influential on me, I think that's great. Yeah. Uh, good news for the audience. Uh, I'm, I'm not, certainly never trying to intentionally imitate him, but boy, I'm living in the world that he helped shape for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so a big, big fan of his. I love him. Uh, I love G.K. Chesterton. I love uh, Jane Austen so much. Um, she's incredible. I love that sort of that era. I love the Napoleonic era sort of stories. I like the Aubrey and Maturin, um, Master and Commander books. Those have been influential for me. Um, Sherlock Holmes, uh, uh, P.G. Woodhouse, like on the on the humor side, Jerome K. Jerome, kind of on the humor side. I love, I love that sort of thing. Um, those are... Oh man, Louisa May Alcott. Louisa May Alcott is, she's one of the reasons I'm a writer because when I was, it's funny because I started sort of writing stories before I uh, really was a reader, which is weird, but I had a teacher that read us Little Women in first grade. And for me that it was like a writer or an author was like an astronaut or it was just something really far away, like maybe in England or a different distant land. I just didn't think about, you know, I was, I lived in a holler, like a, we call them a holler. It's a hollow in, in between mounds in, in, in backwoods, West Virginia. And, uh, my mom would read us stories and uh, I, that's why I love stories, but, and, and she read us little women and, and I found out, I loved Joe March and I, found out oh Joe March is based on Louisa May Alcott and for some reason that clicked something in my head like oh she's American like she's she's not that different than me and you know she comes from a family and there's a bunch of kids that was kind of us and and they weren't always wealthy and it was that was kind of our story and so I really related to her and I thought oh you can be a writer and then I thought well what would why would you do anything else that's like that's a really cool gig and so I was super inspired by Louisa May Alcott so she has to have a place in there for sure very good Last question. 
You know, thank goodness I, this is killing me. This is grueling. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I had the honor of listening to you give a keynote just a few minutes before we came over here. Was it a keynote? I think so. At okay. least, yeah, it was a keynote. I don't I, know what the difference between a keynote is in a in a, in a talk. just a regular talk. Yeah. It felt it felt pretty regular. I didn't. Uh, there was no keys. There were yeah. no notes. Uh, well, maybe you're right. Maybe it was maybe it was more of a ramble. Uh, <laughs> That's what it felt like. I, I think I'm feeling that. That feels more accurate. <laughs> I got to hear you ramble just, just a few minutes before we're yeah. talking here. And uh, a couple things you said, you said you can tear things down a lot quicker than you can build them up. And you also made the comment that uh, in your experience, the community of faith and the church has had a positive impact on your creative life. And uh, that's really refreshing to hear, you know, and I'd love to hear you just share some about how the community of faith has positively impacted you as as a creative well yeah and it i wouldn't want to make that sound too trite like oh it's always been easy and everywhere i've always ever been in church situations i've always been encouraged and that's not <laughs> never run into any trouble right yeah that's not anybody's story let alone just i i think the the thing that i struggle with is that artists i think sometimes find particular difficulty relating to a church i think sometimes andy crouch described artistic people as sort of having um, antennas up so they, they sort of know when something's wrong and i thought that was a pretty good they know that something's wrong I think I find that often creative people often do know that something is wrong. They don't often, they don't always know what it is that's wrong and don't always have the best judgment about that. I, I, I am concerned a little bit about, I don't want to um, step outside of the church for my community, for my identity. Because, partly because partly because I want to be faithful to Jesus Christ, and I think I'm called to be in His church, and it's made up of a bunch of goofy people. So what do goofy people do? They do goofy things or like bad things, and and uh, and so I don't think that you know one bad experience doesn't sort of spoil the whole experience for me. And I've had both for sure, but I'm kind of determined and, and committed because I feel called. And and plus, if I I just think that the church, even if you're just a creative person, like looking for. <laughs> experience and material like if, if you if we just meet other people who are like us like if, if life was like a it was a conference like this and we're like oh I so I so badly long for a creative community I understand that I live in West Virginia I'm not in a media center I don't know a lot of people who are doing the vocation that I'm doing I don't know a lot of people in that job I know like one of my friends is a stump grinder another guy's a truck driver you know fireman this are, these are kind of pastor these are ordinary vocations and I think I benefit as a storyteller from knowing them because I think sometimes what we want when we what we actually want when we say we want creative community what we what we sometimes want is a, is a room full of mirrors mm. a room full of people that look like us and so I can oh you too okay we, we agree on that and it's kind of like a it's a little bit of a self I like the church because it's got a bunch of people that are not like me and I need people that are not like me and you know, just as equally true, the church needs me too. It needs creative people. It needs people who are thinking in that imaginative way. The cost of abandoning it is very high for the church and for the people, I think. I mean, how many times have we, have you met a, like a creative person, an artist, a musician, a storyteller who's like, really needs to talk to like a business person, Absolutely. you know? Like, and like, so we need each other. And that yes. business person needs, needs the creative person too. So I'm just in on the project. I think that Paul's um, vision for the church that has it's like many members of, of one body 
that like the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. I love this metaphor. I think it's so faithful to reality that like we have, we're, we're different. I love diversity. I think diversity is like the truest thing. I mean, it's so true about the world. And Paul describes it as like, we, we don't all have the same gifts. We're not the same. And that's awesome. And, but we need each other. Like, you, you know, you're, it's hard to be blind and to go around and it's hard to not have hands. It's just, it's difficulty. And so we all, every part matters and we all need each other. So I, I, I am committed. I want to be, I want to be faithful to Jesus Christ. I want to show up not only for what I can receive, which feels immense, but for also for, I believe that that's a place where my gifts are needed and I'm called there too. So I want to show up and I have had, I thank God, some really good experiences at the church I'm in now. I feel really validates my vocation without making me a celebrity, without making me like, oh, it's weird. I'm just, like, I'm a part of the church and, and I don't feel superior to the accountant or the stump grinder. I don't, I just feel like we're in community and um, what I do is valuable, but it's not, it's not uniquely like celebrity and it's not, not uniquely troublesome. Like my contributions matter. And um, that's a testament, I think, to the church that God's given me now. But I, I think that that's possible. And, I, and, and, and where it hasn't been, I am committed to working toward that. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. That goes back to our original conversation about family and how art and family yeah. con- uh, converse, you know, with one another. It seems like the church for you, um, and I think the church is meant to be an extension of that family. It is. That's know? the truest family. That's yeah. where my brothers and sisters are more, you know, more than any ethnic or national or whatever space. You know, that's where I feel most. That's where. That's in my belief. That's the family I'm going to be with for for ever and and I'm, I'm I'm like let's get used to it you know <laughs> they might not look like me and I speak the same language as me not have the same job but that's the that's my family and I, and I want to be there for them well, Sam thanks so much for taking this time to talk with me today on the podcast this has been a really refreshing conversation my pleasure I've enjoyed it very much thanks for having me on Steve and thank you for listening to the makers and mystics podcast Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to Sam's work, as well as to join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. As a reminder, we'll be starting the Wonderful Wizard of Oz book club in October. Music for this episode was provided by Somewhere at Sea. We'll see you again next week, and until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.